It's a sensitive, delicate deal, dragging brand new songs out of the sky. Trading ideas, accepting some, storing others in the maybe later bag, moving on and along with hardly a plan. During the Zep years, I never imagined a full-scale album project without the other guys, and even less the idea of new writing partners. But then, since 1981, I've enjoyed many amazing, exciting musicians in the sharing, in the writing, in production and engineering. Men and women who encouraged and enlightened, introducing me to crazy curves I could never have imagined. For this podcast, I'm going to be picking out some songs from here and there along the way, mixing constant shifts in sound and intention from across this long, old time. There's a story in all of them. I'm Robert Plant, and this is Digging Deep. This is the first episode of a new podcast called Digging Deep with Robert Plant, and I'm here with Robert Plant. You got that one right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. How are you, sir? I'm good, yeah. Pretty good. Excited for several reasons. Spring is really kicking really hard. I can see Which it. is beautiful. And uh, I would hate maybe to use the word premature, but it's, it's very fast. It's, things are moving very quickly. Um, I'm excited because uh, I've been able to submit one of my favorite albums of my own time, through my own time, to Record Store Day, which is the 1993 Fate of Nations, which is, was a big turning point for me in my changes as a singer and a writer, yeah. Okay, so this whole series, what was the idea behind it? Why did you choose to, why is now the right time to sort of look back at the whole of your career thus far, do you think? Um, well, I suppose really, I meet a lot of people along the way, well, not a lot, yeah, a lot, and they say, hey, what about that? Why don't you play some of those songs from what happened after the passing of Led Zeppelin? For the f next 20 years after that, there were some very interesting changes and swoops and sweeps. Um, so I played with a lot of very challenging musicians, and, uh, and we worked very hard to try and create a footprint in those various times. Uh, and to be... I wouldn't say more mature, but more broad-minded. Broad so I guess really I was moving through the spheres pretty quickly from maybe 1982 onwards. I think the, the, uh, the glorious confines of being in a four-piece band for a long time was, was, uh, mag it was magnificent at times, but also the very idea of actually working with anybody else and finding what another angle musically could be was not on the cards. You know, we wanted to present ourselves as a combined unit. And as time went on from about um, 1975 or six onwards, I started feeling, um, you know, there's a lot of North African music that was intriguing me all the time uh, since my first trip to Morocco in 72. And I knew that there was a possibility to work and to work in so many different areas. And so when the time came um, through circumstance, then there was a great gaping hole in my ability to create and produce. And the three remaining members of Led Zepp had to decide what they were going to do uh, or if they wanted to do anything at all. The reason that I want to do this is because so many people have said to me, well, why don't you ever do that? What about that song there? And what's that all about? And this is not self-indulgent. It's just 
basically hugely indulgent because, <laughs> because I really, when I play some of the stuff, I was, you know, each era you, I tried to embrace the sound or the technology of the time. Um, I moved ahead through all these different times and uh, with changing personnel, um, I just developed it from probably from about 1982 when Pictures at 11 was first developed um, to now. It's just a com- always changing. Where does this restlessness come from? It's what? not restless. No, I mean... pe- people like to tune it in and say, <laughs> what's the matter with you? But I mean, but every, every time you now, I find even more so that if you bring in another spirit, and another um, contribution musically to what you're already doing, uh, then the whole thing changes, slightly changes colour. Now, as a singer and as a, a writer to some degree, but most of all as an entertainer, which I like to think is what I am, what I do, uh, I, I really want to be stimulated. Mm. So I don't find it, I don't think it's restless. I think I've just been very lucky to... Because I'm not a, I don't use musical. I don't play a guitar on stage, or um, you know, or I basically am the front man. But when you're creating music and you're writing, you have to be more than just hanging around waiting for people to deliver stuff to you. Although there are a lot of musicians that do do that, so I'm right. I, I'm right in there with people. And so, if I'm working with Joel Day from West Africa or from the guys around Rashid Taha from Paris, from Algeria, or from with T-Bone Burnett or Paddy Griffin, Buddy Miller, you know, uh, whoever it is, it has to be colourful. And it has to be light enough to be joyous too. Some of the songs are quite introspective, but most importantly, I like to think that within my own, the confines and limitations of what I can do, that they are worthy for what I'm all about. So that seems to me to be a pretty healthy way of looking at being, a mu- being in the game. What a lovely thing just to be able to, like, because being who you are, it's open these doors, people, you know, just it's the access. Well, must yeah. Be a, absolutely. What a fantastic place to be. Well, you've got to pick the lock, you know, quite seriously. You, because, I mean, I am, to many people, ask a cab driver and they think I'm a Wolverhampton Wanderers season ticket holder who sang Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they just you're just there or you're not there, and um, so for me, I'm definitely here. And so, yeah, I, I I like this kind of funny thing title. I think media being what it is, it's quite interesting. You know, the, this restless guy from the Welsh borders, looking always at the Iron Age hill forts, you know, falling in love with love and all that shit. But basically, I want to be inventive, and um, so I do quite a few things if you make if you did get good in one particular time in your creative time and that was enough can you always think that looking back is the only thing to do well you know so these little podcast things are basically a, a wraparound of things that i really like that at times i thought i was embarrassed about some of the sounds some really? of the attitudes <laughs> yeah some of the um, sort of kitsch
Okay, so where are we starting? Episode one, what's the song that we're going to start with and what's the album that it's from and why are we starting here, I guess is the question. Well, the album is Fate of Nations and we're starting here because this is a big turning point for me. The whole idea of actually combining with a co-producer who'd got good, good chops, clever, patient and very detailed guy. Chris Hughes came along and he was connected to the people around me at the time. Dave Bates, who signed me. And we went to Rack Studios, Mickey Moses' place, and we went to town. And it was probably the first time that I'd approached musicians to embellish a track, just come in, can you play on this? You know, it's not exactly a three-hour session, like a musician's union thing, but I'd stopped this kind of sacrosanct sort of, I suppose you'd call it uh, loyalty to the band as a thought process. Okay. So I'd been through the 60s and 70s in bands and... That was the kind of tabernacle of creativity and life was to be in the band, you know, not to, to bring somebody else in because you because you wanted it different. And then in the early eighties, it was a pretty good combination. So it, they were great. But by the time we got to nineteen ninety three, I was determined to make to grow up a little bit to finally shed all the last remnants of um, the Lemon Song, I suppose, at least that particular time so the song that i've chosen is from that album so it's from fate of nations and it's called calling to you and it's a powerful powerful piece um it's lyrical thread it is concentrating on greed and the whole deal of how we are all fully aware of the gross personality of man the great destroyer to use lowe's term in terms of lyrics, when, when you were writing at this time, are you, do you sit somewhere and wait for the muse to arrive or, do you have to, or did you work at it? Is there a theme you take and then go from there for this song? How did it work? It's the same for all songs. I write all the time on a train, on a plane, on a, you know, wherever it is. And um, like everybody, you write something on a scrap of paper and stick it somewhere and then you find it later and try and figure out... What, what it was relating to. But you what it was it, you meant. <laughs> yeah, and put it all in the, in the back of a book and then you start shaping up where these things meet and whether there's anything really tangible. I mean, right now in 2019, I think we're so confused and battered by circumstances within and outside of our own existence, all around us. I can't even imagine how anybody would go about writing a song because it's so, it's so, these times are so intense, you know. Um, I'm sure somewhere on Tin Pan Alley or that street in Nashville called Music Row, <laughs> where there's a lot of to let signs, you know, it's a very quick turnover in a lot of areas. 
people are actually able to write la di da love songs now, but um, the writing has always been on the wall. We've always been kind of aware of stuff, but it's never been so evident and so heavy as it is right now. If I go back to that time then, 1992-3, yeah, themes were still heavy. They were coming across. This record has got a lot, a lot in my, with my own limitations, it's got a lot to say. I've been blessed by a collision of some brand new guys that I hadn't worked with before. And, uh, and so they came along and they played and made it sound absolutely insane. Really, really, really amazing. And um, there was a guy called, Fra there is a guy actually still called Francis Dunnery and he was in a group called It Bites. And these days, prog is considered like, we, we laugh at prog. I guess he was at the sharp end of all of it. He was, he was magnificently nuts. And uh, his energy, with all the chops that he had as a prog guitar player, but when he was playing with me, he had to bring in the Howling Wolf side of it. So it was just a fantastic departure. And I just met this guy called Michael Lee, who was playing with the cult. Well, I mean, I've been very blessed playing alongside some spectacular drummers. I mean, really, all the way through. Richie Hayward came with me for about five, six years after leaving Little Feet. Phil Collins helped me on my first two solo albums, put his stuff on one side and came and kicked the, the rhythms together on the first two records. And, um, you know, just, just all the way, all the time, there were great drummers. And Michael Lee, he was spectacular. He stayed with us through... Um, I spent a couple of years working with Jimmy Page again with an Egyptian orchestra and, he, and bunches of presets, and uh, Michael came through that. So, I mean, he he had the capacity to drum with the right amount of passion and verve, but at the same time, he was very a very clever drummer. It was really good, Charlie Jones, the bass player. So it was really happening. We were going places. And this track, Calling to You, I wanted to create drones underneath the track. I wanted to, there to be a kind of shimmering, uh, discordant drone on the tonic of the key of the song. And we, um, we hired a bunch of classical Indian musicians who came and put a blanket on the floor at rack, much to Mickey Most's amusement as he popped his head around the door. And they're sitting in a circle with um, Shenai and Madringam and trying to play to a 12-8 time signature. And we were there for about three hours or so while these musicians who'd come all the way from the Deccan were struggling. So we got the drone, but they couldn't play they were unable to read the musical elements of the riff. So, interestingly, we had to thank them very much and, off, you know, that didn't really work. But I just happened to know, back up in Malvern, the sort of shadowy bastard grandson of uh, William Blake was living on the side of a hill with his fiddle, uh, Nigel Kennedy. And... Uh, <laughs> He and I had got very opposing feelings about Midland soccer. So <laughs> I'd take him up to see my team and he'd take me to see his. And we, uh, we had a lot of fun together. Very, he painted his car claret and blue with household paint. 
And I had an old Rover, which I painted matte black and put gold wolf heads all over it. So whenever we met anywhere for a coffee, <laughs> the police were on us like a ton of bricks. All right, gents, what's going on here? Well, in the 60s, <laughs> they used to tell me in West Brom, the cops, to uh, go home and get dressed properly. And uh, now they were asking me if I got some kind of mental problem. Uh, so anyway, we were good friends, are still good friends, and... Um, I called him and explained this situation and said, look, we've had all these guys in, they can't do it. So he came along, he did everything. He played all the parts, did harmonies. Then we made the most amazing video for it. And the video is in absolute empathy, synchronicity with the song. It's, and Nigel was resplendent in his uh, small silk waistcoat, kicking like... It's a great video. I mean, in the times when you could actually... A bloke of my time could be seen swirling round and round with molten ash and kerosene falling on us from above. It was perfect way to catch fire. It was a really, really good and very animated track from its inception to its placement on the record. This journey, we're going to keep on doing these. We're going to keep on going back to specific songs and moving around on the roadmap of your of your life. Well, let's see how they work out. Because, yeah, I mean, there's some great tracks. And, uh, and then there's some tracks that were great attempts at being great. So will everybody's, everybody who steps out into this game, some are great and some, some moments are fantastic and some maybe aren't. Maybe I should do one podcast of all the ones that I think are really incredibly embarrassing. We could, we could do one episode of just like the ones that, that maybe shouldn't, shouldn't have been recorded. Well, they should have been recorded. I was just recorded by the wrong bloke. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I'd, I cut a track on Shakespeare's Third called Too Loud. And I got Bette Midler's girls to come and help me with some choruses and stuff. And I basically was seriously affected by David Byrne. Amazing, amazing artist. Yeah. So I wrote this piece called Too Loud, and it's just about the El Topo aspects of our game, you know. And it's very funny. It's a funny song. It's supposed to be funny. It's in the elevator. You can hear it in the hall. It's where you didn't want it, and it's coming through the walls because it's too loud. Just very, very funny. So the record label said, what are we supposed to do with this? I said, well... <laughs> Play it and let's get some reaction, because in America in those days, people used to phone in and say, hey, play that again. I like that. And phones were very important. That's a very important aspect of floating a new collection of songs. But sadly, the phones that came in to the WXRT in Chicago were, get that shit off. What the hell is that? Who's that guy? <laughs> Who's he trying to be? And... Uh, <laughs> So that was a real great moment for me because they sent me all the responses typed out. <laughs> and uh, I was very proud. I thought that was another great moment from the man who wouldn't be king. You know, that's, yeah, let's, let's see how we get on. I think we're going to talk about some pretty good songs as well. 
I'd like to think that some of them are all right, yeah. But uh, at the time, you're going back a long way, you know, to go back to... It's 39 years ago, virtually, since I, I was sort of standing out there going, hmm, well, what should we do now, you know? There's a lot to leave behind. Well, let's find out. Okay. And that was the very first episode of Robert Plant's new podcast, Digging Deep. And don't forget, Robert's 1993 album, Fate of Nations, from which that track, Calling to You, was taken, was recently re-released as part of Record Store Day, so you can pick it up now. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit subscribe to make sure the next episode arrives via your chosen podcast provider, and you'll be able to hear Robert tackle another brilliant song from his brilliant back catalogue. Until then, I've been Matt Everett. Thanks very much for listening. This has been a Cup and Nuzzle production. (laughs) 